Actually, there are some interesting points that came out of your discussion. Yes. Mm-hmm. Scattered mind. Scattered mind. Yeah. What does that have to do with the stuff with the time? I <laughs> I question that ability to be able to speak out and that scattered mind not being able to be in contact. So not able to communicate. Mm-hmm. So not knowing when to speak out, when to. Well, that fear. What? What is that scattered mind? What happens if I'm fearful? I disconnect. I'm totally, and I can't communicate anymore. I'm totally disconnected. Is it that scattered mind? Anxiety. What is a scattered mind? Scattered mind is just tons of thoughts. Tons of thoughts going here, going there, all over the place. Yeah, like a circus. It's hard to communicate when you have a mind like that. Yeah, it's difficult to communicate because we can't stay on anything. And we're not, usually when we're scattered, we're not very clear about what we actually think and what we feel. But what about hiding and that urge to speak out? What did you come to about that? I found that both my hiding and speaking out were attachment to reputation. With the mental state of feeling actually the same for both the students. Ah, interesting. Both of them were based on attachment to reputation. Mm -hmm. So um, either of those poles, either side... The feeling in the body for me is the same. It's got a, it's got a charge to it or a, an easiness in there. Yeah. Both sides. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if you don't talk to me, I won't talk to you either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My group, there is a couple of interesting points right about how we do these things. Um, there are old patterns of behavior that kind of started as a response to something that happened in the past, and then we perpetuated them. Mm. And how you know we can hold on to the story about ourselves, and even though this behavior is not beneficial in the present, we still carry them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So things that we once used as tactics to deal with the situation, we just make into a habit and you know, lose our ability to, to think creatively and act creatively. I, I find that uh, because we're all so habituated towards that way of communicating, that actually when we step out of that pattern, other people don't. I find sometimes other people don't actually hear me as well anymore. That if I'm not loud, then a lot of times people actually don't take me seriously. Although they might hear what I'm saying, and not to say that being loud and obnoxious is going to get my goal, but at least they're listening. But when I when I stop acting that way, oftentimes people will hear me, but not take it that seriously. Especially if I'm talking about my own emotional situation, mm-hmm. if I'm not speaking about my, my own self, my own emotions in an emotional way, then I must not really be feeling <laughs> is the response that I actually get, and people will kind of stare at me blankly. And, and even though it's something quite intense for me, they won't take it very seriously. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I have the opposite, is that I believe that my over-the-top emotions are exactly how I feel and that for me to bring them down and to be able to speak from a place where the emotions are true I believe that my emotions are appropriate at that over the top and I don't know any other way to articulate strong feelings except over the top so when I have somebody in my life who doesn't share that way I probably don't listen very well because it's not an over the top kind of emotion so then I just like, well, not touch exactly what I was saying. He's not in touch with his feelings because he's not over the top with his emotions. 
rather than he's really saying what he feels, but I can't hear it because I'm mm-hmm. over the top means you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, you drowned. I drowned. <laughs> <laughs> you can't hear anything else. Well, I used to drown, and now <laughs> I'm learning how to float a little bit. Mm-hmm. Was the discussion uncomfortable? Yes. Actually, well, at first um, it was, I think, and then we got into it, and I think everyone eased up. It was very uh, healthy. And everyone, I think, felt much softer about it and much more self acceptance, too, about our habitual patterns. It was very good. Mm -hmm. And I think learned a lot from really listening to each other's experiences. Mm-hmm. I also found it very useful to hear um, how community deals with the communication and difficulties. Mm-hmm. And how some of the patterns would evolve from our own family situation that that's, that's brought into the way we communicate now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, have been to several um, Catholic um, convents. And, and nunneries and uh, I spoke with one um, uh, what is it the postulant or the novice mistress and she told me that what she really looks out for is that people often come into a community and they have so many patterns of, from their family of what feels like comfortable behavior that they reenact those in the community to try and make the community react like their family reacted so that even though it was, it's all very dysfunctional, it feels comfortable to that person because they're used to those dynamics. Wow. <laughs> to tune into that as a novice mistress is quite some feat. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a question arose during the discussion in my mind about which it was illustrated just when you asked us about it and then you had to say <laughs> you don't talk to me I won't talk to you so it was kind of like when is it um, some kind of just that desire to speak out and say something coming from a self-centered standpoint for me usually motivated by some form of pride or attachment to views mm-hmm. um and when is it an intelligent or skillful time to engage in conversation? Because I have that initial instinct when you ask for, for comments to say, I know where I have, you know, I want to go, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. Because I'm trying to refrain from responding to that. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, so now people, there's the concern about going the other way. That if you're somebody who instantly jumps in, now you're going to go the other way and really hold back. And, you know, and vice versa. I think it's, um, what I do is, there's a certain feeling in my mind when I have to say something. And it's, it's quite evident because I cannot keep my mouth closed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just, oh, there's a choice to contribute to the conversation. But I interrupt and I, you know say it in a very firm voice or whatever it is. Yeah. So you just look for cues inside yourself for how you do if you're, you know, have that irrepressible urge to, you know, for me it's to correct the situation because otherwise it's all going to fall apart. (laughs) (laughs) But you don't have to deliberately hold back you know, if, if you have something to contribute, contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's the same kind of thing with me, but um, I will say, like, I'll say to myself, is this necessary? You have to say this. And then, like, sometimes we'll be asking, but sometimes you'll be done, and then that's kind of hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's often very good to pause yeah. and really see. And that's the value of uh, keeping silence. Any other comments? Yeah. 
These questions I felt were very kind of slippery and I had a difficult time kind of grasping them. I was just kind of curious what was going through your mind when you were formulating these questions. Oh, what was going through my mind is, um, you know, just in observing myself and observing other people, that sometimes there are these two extreme kind of behaviors. One where, you know, it's like, I've got to say it, I can't re- you know, keep my mouth closed. And the other one where it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm under the radar, you know, don't look. I'm in this room, but don't see me. Because if you see me, you're going to attack me or do something to me, and I'm uncomfortable, so I just don't want to be seen. <laughs> yeah? And so noticing that all of us in different situations will do those two things. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some people will go more towards one. Some people will go more towards the other. But, um, you know, I thought it would be good to talk about that because these kind of dynamics when you live in community um, come up and they affect your, your communication with other people. And if you're, you know, trying to uh, you know, counsel people or, you know, lead a meditation or do who knows what, then, you know, these kinds of fears or whatever, you know, behaviors, they kind of jump in, in there. And then also because I was thinking that um, we develop these habits, like somebody said, you know, these habits from before and we just keep doing them and we never notice them as habits yeah and so we just keep keep doing them and they don't always work so well in our life but we don't even notice them we've never even thought that they're something that we could question or maybe play with and experiment with and see what it would be like to do you know to do differently and uh I think when when you're really practicing, you have to have that kind of flexibility in your mind to, um, you know, I was talking yesterday about how we dig ourselves in holes and then we sit in them and whine and complain and feel sorry for ourselves and rebel and everything else. But, uh, you know, to, to when we see that we're doing the same old thing and it's not working, to notice it and then to have some kind of, um, you know, feeling of inquisitiveness or playfulness or, well, let's just see what it's like to do it differently. Yeah? Because that's what makes us grow in the Dharma. Yeah? If we're really practicing, then we're checking our motivations all the time and we discover deeper and deeper layers of how clever the self-centered thought is. Does that make sense? So I hope it was beneficial. So let's remember about the ignoble search and the noble search. About oneself being under the influence of birth, aging, sickness, death sorrow and defilements, seeking out what is also under the influence of birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow and defilements, thinking that that will make it happy, make us happy. And to realize now with this precious human life we have the opportunity to shine the light of wisdom on that situation and really investigate what are the actual causes of well-being and what is actual well-being. Those are important topics to contemplate because if we want to work for the well-being of all sentient beings, we have to know what direction we're trying to guide them in and to guide ourselves in that direction first. And so with the long-term motivation to attain Buddhahood for the benefit of sentient beings, 
And let's investigate that topic and investigate the Buddha's life and how he modeled that, how he uh, saw with clarity that and led his life. What I personally find very inspiring about the Buddha's life is even though he lived 2,600 years ago about, I can really identify with what he encountered in his life and the situations he had to deal with. You know, society's a bit different, but the, the basic outline, the basic framework is the same. So I personally find that very inspiring. And to see how, you know, he was so caught up in the worldly life and had so much social pressure and family pressure and peer pressure and all that kind of stuff on his head. And yet how he was able to really see with clarity that uh, fixing the short-term problems of this life while beneficial doesn't solve the ultimate problem and how getting short-term pleasures in this life doesn't bring lasting satisfaction and fulfillment and so he was able to really investigate that and see that very clearly with his life and make decisions accordingly. So I, you know, I see what he did as kind of an example for the, the kind of uh, thought process that I need to, to go through too. And especially saying, you know, what is well-being? What is happiness? And what are the actual causes to get there? Because again, we have lots and lots of habits about that just as Siddhartha did. And, you know, so it's a, pro- a process of looking at our habits, looking at our thoughts, and questioning them and seeing if they're really accurate. Yeah. It's, it's doing some house cleaning. and Okay, I have all these thoughts. I've operated this way for X number of years until right now. And uh, where is it leading me? And what alternatives do I have? And if, you know, a deeply held value I I have is to benefit all beings, then what do I need to do to actualize that? So where we left off the Buddhist story yesterday, he had gone to Alara Kamala and actualized everything that teacher had to teach him. And he, uh, the teacher invited him to co-lead the community. And the Buddha turned it down. You know, here's the perfect chance. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, sometimes you see people who are like, they all want to be around the teacher and they all want to be the special person to the teacher. And they're all kind of nudging each other. I want to be the one around the teacher and, you know, get the special attention. And then here was the Buddha. It's like he was that person. He didn't even try to be. But by the power of his meditation, his teacher recognized him and invited him to co-lead the community. And he turned it down, you know. Whereas those of us who are groupies, it's like, you know, we want to get close to the teacher. Oh, you asked me to do something? Yeah, 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 yeah. Get out of the way. I'm doing it. (laughs) And we jump in there, and then we, like, shine afterwards. Oh, the teacher chose me to do. Okay. So it's interesting how he he didn't fall for that, did he? He kind of did the opposite. Hmm? Okay, so he he left Alara Kamala and he um, went on and he met another 
teacher. So he said, still in search of what is wholesome, seeking the supreme state of sublime peace, I went to Udaka Ramaputta and said to him, you know, that he wanted to learn what he had to teach. And the exact same thing happened, you know. First he mastered the teacher's uh, instructions intellectually. Then he thought, oh, it's the teacher doesn't just teach this intellectually. He must have some experience of it. I should meditate and try and gain some experience. And he did that. He attained that. You know, he checked his experience with the teacher. And then Udaka Ramaputta said, you and I have the same realization. Come and lead the community with me. Okay. Uh, and the realization that that uh, Udaka Ramaputta had was he had reached the, um, the base of neither perception nor non-perception, that one that's the peak of samsara, the deepest concentration that samsara beings can get and so the Buddha had done that too saw that there was still no liberation yeah, still the mind wasn't free of grasping and so again he turned down that teacher's invitation to co-lead the community okay and so again you know still in search of what is wholesome seeking the supreme state of sublime peace I wandered by stages through the Magadha, uh, Magadhan country until eventually I arrived at Senanigama near Uruvela. There I saw an agreeable piece of ground, a delightful grove with a clear flowing river and pleasant smooth banks and a nearby village for alms resort. I considered, you know, this is a good place, uh, and it will serve for the striving of a clansman intent on striving, in other words, himself. And I sat down there thinking, this will serve for striving. Okay. Okay, now we're going to another sutra. Still in the middle length discourse of sutra number 36, which is called The Greater Discourse to uh, Sakaka. And here, the Buddha is talking about his, um, uh, his period of doing ascetic practices. Because after he left uh, Odaka Ramaputta, then he you know, wandered, he found another place to meditate, and he started you know, uh, doing the ascetic practices. Okay, Before he did that, he had the thought that... Um, that wanderers, you know, and Brahmins who didn't live physically and mentally separate from sense objects uh, and mentally separate from the attachment to them in the sense of uh, at least suppressing the attachment, the gross attachment, that these people, whether they felt pain or didn't feel pain, uh, they wouldn't be able to gain knowledge and vision and enlightenment. Okay, so people who were still, their minds still involved with the objects of attachment and still overwhelmed by very gross attachment. So those people, sounds like me, whether they experience pain or they don't experience pain, they're not going to arrive at knowledge and vision and enlightenment. Why? Because if you're super attached to sense objects, when you experience pain, your mind isn't going to go to generate wisdom. It's going to go to anger. It's going to go to self-pity. It's going to go to, what can I do to get myself out of this situation? It's intolerable. I can't bear it. And, you know, and being angry and blaming somebody and wanting to get out of it. So before he did his ascetic practices, he realized that, okay? Then, similarly, those who lived separate from the objects of attachment, but they still hadn't mentally suppressed the attachment. In other words, it's possible that we aren't around the objects of attachment, but our mind is around them a lot. 
Okay, and they always say that this is the real danger for people who 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 think that they're going to go off and meditate on their own. Is they go off to meditate on their own, they're sense separated from the sense objects physically, but the mind is thinking about them. Yeah. Like, oh, I wonder what kind of alms I'm going to get today. You know, oh, maybe they're going to give this. Maybe they're going to get that. I wonder where I can go take a shower. I wonder where it's com- I'm going to find a comfortable place to sleep. I really want it. You know, I'm going to go meditate under a tree. I want some place that's cool. I don't want it too hot. You know, and then the the real thing that is a sabotage is I wonder what all those people who make alms to me think of me all my friends who know I'm out meditating alone in the forest in the cave wherever I wonder if they think I'm a really wonderful yogi I wonder what they're talking about <laughs> you know and they say this is the real thing that, that meditators can get hooked on is thinking about their reputation with the people in the village okay but when I come out of my retreat and I come down there, maybe they're all going to think I attained high realizations. Or they're all going to rejoice so much because I did so much practice. And then they'll give me, oh, so much spaghetti. <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll have a party. They'll be so happy to see me. You know, so all this kind of, this kind of thought. You know, go see mine. Yeah. People who have done retreat, does this go through your mind? Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. So, if, if, if the, even though you've separated from the objects, if the mind is still involved, yeah, you're, you're not going to be able to get uh, knowledge and vision and enlightenment. But somebody who is physically and mentally withdrawn from sense pleasure, in other words, they live a simple lifestyle, they're not all busy trying to gather everything that they want. And the attachment for those things has been suppressed, basically through concentration. Then, whether they feel pain or not, they're capable of uh, cultivating knowledge and vision and supreme enlightenment. Okay? So because they have uh, deep concentration, when there's deep stages of deep concentration, the uh, gross afflictions are temporarily suppressed so that gives the mind some space to really investigate the nature of reality in a deep way and realize it and thus gain these realizations okay so he had that that kind of way of thinking uh, in his mind that kind of awareness when he went off and he said I thought suppose with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed mine with mine. So with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed mine with mine. While I did so, sweat ran from my armpits, just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or the shoulders and beat him down, constrain him, crush him, so I too, with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed mine with mine, and sweat debt ran down from my armpits. But although tireless energy was aroused in me, and unremitting mindfulness was established, my body was overwrought and uncalm because I was exhausted by the painful striving. But such painful feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remained. Okay, because he had deep concentration. Yeah, but even though he was like engaged in this internal civil war, his body was completely exhausted. And I suspect that his mind wasn't completely calm and smooth either. You know, when we get that kind of, you know, ferocious attitude, if we do it in the wrong, if we do it in a correct way, we can be very firm with our afflictions. But if we do it in an incorrect way, our mind just gets very, very tight. Okay, and a tight mind can't do anything. It gets stressed, and then our meditation kind of falls apart. 
So I thought, suppose I practice the breathingless meditation. So I stop the in-breaths and the out-breaths. He's getting into his ascetic practices here. Through, I stop the in-breaths and out-breaths through my mouth and nose. While I did so, there was a loud sound of winds coming up from my ear holes. Just as there is a loud sound when the smith's bellows are blown, so too when I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths through my nose and ears, there was a loud sound of wind coming out from my ear holes. But although tireless energy was aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness was established, my body was overwrought and uncalmed because I was exhausted by the painful striving. Okay. But such painful feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. Okay. So although the, he wasn't overcome by the pain, he knew something was wrong in his meditation. Okay. He had the ability to stop the in-breath and the out-breath, but he's getting this whooshing sound in his head. You know, something's not right. So then what he did is he... he Stopped the, he practiced the breathingless meditation, stopping the in-breaths and out-breaths through his mouth, nose, and ears. Okay. Similar kind of thing happened. He started getting violent winds cut through my head. Doesn't sound good, does it? Yeah. So that didn't work either. Yeah, even though he wasn't overcome by the, the painful feeling, didn't make him angry or anything, he realized that wasn't working. Okay. Then he um, practiced further the breathingless meditation. Okay. And he was getting violent pains in his head. Yeah, so similar thing, kind of just the violent pains. Oh, but the, this time it was like the... It was like a strong man tightening a tough leather strap around my head as a headband. No, that's not the kind of result you want in your meditation. <laughs> okay. Then he, he, did it, he, he did it further, and this time, violent winds carved up my belly, just as if a skillful butcher or his apprentice were to carve up an ox's belly with a sharp butcher's knife. So, too, while I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths through my mouth, nose, and ears, violent winds carved up my belly. That didn't work either. Okay? So, there's a few more things like this. Yeah? And then the... um, He got in such a state, you know, from stopping the breath, that eventually some of the local deities saw him, and they said, the wanderer Gotama is dead. They thought he was dead because he stopped his breath. And other uh, of these local deities said, he's not dead, he's dying. And a third group said, he is not dead and he's not dying, he's an arhat. Because that's what arhats, the way arhats abide. And so Siddhartha thought at that time, suppose I practiced entirely cutting off food. Okay. And then, because all this breathing stuff hadn't worked, so now he's really going to do a set of stuff. He's going to cut out food. And the deities came up to him, and they said, Good sir, do not practice entirely cutting off food. If you do, we shall infuse heavenly food into the pores of your skin, and you will live on that. So they weren't going to let him starve. I considered, if I claim to be completely fasting while those deities infuse heavenly food into my por- the pores of my skin, and I live on that, then I shall be lying. Yeah. So he had some integrity. He wasn't going to pretend to be some great meditator <coughs> that wasn't eating. Meanwhile, these local deities were nourishing him. Uh, so he dismissed the deities and said, there is no need. So he refused their offering. I thought, suppose I take very little food, a handful each time, whether of bean soup or lentil soup or veg soup or pea soup or venerable uh, Yeshe's chocolate cake. So I took very little food, a handful each time, 
whether it be soup or lentil soup or veg soup or pea soup. While I did so, my body reached a state of extreme emaciation. Because of eating so little, my limbs became like the jointed segments of vine stems or bamboo stems. Okay. Because of eating so little, my backside became like a camel's hoof. Because of eating so little, the projections on my spine stood out like corded beads. Because of eating so little, my ribs jutted out as gaunt as the crazy rafters of an old roofless barn. Because of eating so little, the gleam of my eyes sank far down in their sockets, looking like the gleam of water that has sunk far down in a deep well. Because of eating so little, my scalp shriveled and withered as a green bitter gourd shrivels and withers in the wind and the sun. Because of eating so little, my belly skin adhered to my backbone. So when he touched his navel, he felt his backbone. Thus, if, if I touched my belly skin, I encountered my backbone. And if I touched my backbone... I encountered my belly skin. Because of eating so little, if I urinated or defecated, I fell over on my face there. It was very weak. Because of eating so little, if I tried to ease my body by rubbing my limbs with my hands, the hair rotted at its roots, fell from my body as I rubbed. Okay. So in ancient India at that time, there was this whole thing of, you know, do ascetic practices because if you, uh, you know, the, the body has so much lust, the body has so much desire that if you deprive the body, you will conquer the lust and the desire. Okay? This is a thought that was very prominent in the Catholic Church, too, until Vatican II, basically. You know, the idea behind whipping yourself with a... With a, a yeah, self-flagellation and all sorts of practices like that. The idea being that if you tortured the body, you would get rid of attachment to the body. But as we were saying here, one of the previous things, that even if you, you know, stay away from objects of attachment, you torture your body, if you don't have wisdom, if you don't have deep meditative concentration, it does no good. You don't get anywhere spiritually. You can't have knowledge and vision and attain enlightenment. Yeah, You just become weak and emaciated and miserable. It's not that spiritual qualities increase. Okay, But this is... So what the Buddha realized, I mean, what Siddhartha realized at this time, <coughs> was very counter to the popular trend in India, thinking that if you did this, self, this kind of... Uh, very ascetic practices that you would conquer your mind. So he found out from his own experience that that is not going to work. I thought whatever recluses or Brahmins in the past have experienced painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion, this is the utmost. There is none beyond this. So he had reached the limit of pain that one could experience through ascetic practices. And whatever recluses and Brahmins in the future will experience painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion, this is the utmost. There is none beyond this. And the same for the, the ones in the present. Okay. But by this racking practice of austerities, I have not ta- attained any superhuman states any distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the Arya beings. Okay? So, I put a lot of effort into it. Didn't work. And he had the honesty to admit it. So then he wondered, could there be another path to enlightenment? And then he remembered when he was a child and sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree that spontaneously he went into deep samadhi even as a child due to imprints from from previous lives 
So he began to think, oh, could that be the path to enlightenment? And following on that memory came the realization, that is the path to enlightenment. I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? So when when generating these jhanic meditations, these states of samadhi, the pleasure that you experience isn't like normal pleasure. So he's saying, why am I so afraid of the pleasure of concentration? Okay? And... Uh, and it's interesting, you know, because sometimes when people get into that that self-deprecating, I hate my own body thing, then they feel guilty for any kind of pleasure they experience whatsoever. And it seems like the Buddha was stuck at that point. You know, well, even the pleasure of samadhi, I shouldn't even have that. Uh, but then he began to question his old way of thinking. Why am I afraid of that? I thought, I am not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. Okay? Um, so then, to relate this to our discussion yesterday where we were talking about the dangers of getting attached to the bliss of uh, meditation, so now you're going to wonder, oh, he's not afraid of that, that bliss of meditation. Oh, what's up? Well, the reason he's not afraid of it is because his, you can see all along how firm his motivation is to attain supreme enlightenment. So because that motivation is very firm, he's not going to get hung up and distracted by the bliss of samadhi. Yeah? That thing of getting distracted by that, the bliss of samadhi happens to people who are really grasping on to some kind of pleasure right now and whose renunciation of cyclic existence is not very strong. Because they haven't renounced the form realm and the formless realms. Okay? But the Buddha clearly has. Well, he's not the Buddha at this point in the story. Okay? But he clearly has renounced all of that. I considered it is not easy to attain that pleasure with a body so excessively emaciated. Suppose I ate some solid food, some boiled rice and bread. And I ate some solid food, some boiled rice and bread. So he had, uh, he had been doing all these ascetic practices with, his, uh, with five friends, five other ascetics. If you go on pilgrimage to Bodh Gaya, you know, there's one place that's outside of Bodh Gaya where they say is the place where the Buddha meditated for six years doing these ascetic practices. And so when he realized they weren't working, he left the five friends that he was meditating with and he went to sit under another tree and this one young woman thinking that he was the god of the tree came up to make offering to him and gave him some boiled rice and you know something to drink and he ate that and he felt nourished he regained his physical strength and at that point he crossed the river and it, now, nowadays it's a dry river bank, but then it was a flowing river. He crossed the river and went into the area that's now known as Bodhaya and sat under the Bodhi tree. Okay? But we're still back. He ate some solid food. Okay? Now, at that time, five um, bhikshus who were waiting upon me, his friends, you know, thinking... If our recluse Gotama achieves some higher states, he will inform us. But when I ate the boiled rice and bread, the five bhikshus were disgusted and left me thinking that recluse Gotama now lives luxuriously. He has given up striving and reverted to luxury. So they completely ostracized him. You know, First they thought if he got somewhere, he'd tell them. Then when he ate something, it's like this guy's a weak-hearted you know, self-indulgent, living luxuriously by eating some rice and bread. Okay. So, so here he dealt with the peer pressure from his friends. Yeah? And the being ostracized from his friends. Now when I had eaten solid food and regained my strength, then quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, 
I entered upon and abided in the first jhana, which is accompanied by, I, know, I use different translation terms, by, yeah, coarse and subtle engagement with rapture and bliss born of seclusion. But such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. So the same thing here, although he expressed, he experienced pleasure from this jhanic state, it didn't invade his mind in the sense of generating attachment. And so then he meditated. Um, he progressed through these jhanic states. Um, I gave some description of them on Bodhisattva Breakfast Corner not long ago. You know, with the five jhanic factors, the ones that you eliminate as, as you go through um, and different factors you strengthen to, to get to the fourth jhanas. Okay, so he got all the way up to the fourth jhana. And then what he started to do, when my, my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldly, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of the recollection of past lives. I recollected my manifold past lives. Okay, so this was the first higher knowledge that he gained was the ability to see all of his previous lives. Yeah, and that comes through the power of having uh, attained the fourth jhana. Now, if you were to remember all of your previous lives, what kind of dharma understanding do you think it would generate in you? Renunciation. <laughs> yeah, renunciation, wouldn't it? Because you would see all these previous lives. I did this. I did that. I was born here. I was born there. I had incredible wealth. I was rich. I was poor. I was outcast. I had, you know, great um, states of concentration. I was a hell being completely up and down in cyclic existence. If you saw that that had been your experience in your previous lives, how, what kind of conclusion would you draw? Would you want to keep being in cyclic existence? No way. Okay, so that brings very, very strong renunciation. So that's really going to make his determination very, very strong. Okay, so that was the first knowledge. And that's what he attained in the first watch of the night. Yeah. <coughs> then in the second watch of the night, with that very concentrated mind, he directed it towards the knowledge of the passing away and reappearance of beings. So this was the second knowledge. He, be, he was able to see through the power of his samadhi different sentient beings dying and how they were reborn due to their karma. Okay? So he saw this whole thing going on throughout this entireless, limitless universe, you know, from beginningless time, sentient beings dying and through the force of their karma getting reborn. And then dying from that life to the force of, you know, their, their ignorance and karma getting reborn again. Living that life again dying. Yeah through the force of ignorance and karma and craving, being reborn again. Now imagine for a minute that you had the direct perception of that going on for all these infinite beings. What dharma realization, what would you conclude from that? Bodhicitta, wouldn't you? It would be unbearable to see sentient beings dying and being reborn again and again uselessly but just because there was ignorance and craving and afflictions and karma again and again so very very strong bodhicitta okay now in I'm going to pause here it's not written in here because they they go directly on to the third higher knowledge but uh, as the story goes, and if you watched um, Little Buddha, you probably saw that when the Buddha was sitting under the Bodhi tree, then Mara, Mara's the personification 
of uh, he appears as an external being but he's the personification of our afflictions okay so first Mara sent armies yeah I think it was first the armies yeah first the armies and so Mara's armies coming in the Buddha's sitting there trying to meditate all these beings coming to attack him to antagonize him you know to beat up on him and so what what that actually symbolizes is all of his own anger okay because when we have the seed of anger inside of us we see fearful things outside the, the more anger we have inside of us the more we're suspicious of others the more we're afraid of others you know because you can see how this works karmically okay because if we're angry and we have a lot of hostile thoughts towards others due to our anger then just on a mental psychological level we're going to assume that others have as many hostile thoughts towards us as we have towards them okay if we're very suspicious of other living beings we're going to and we treat them with suspicion we're going to assume that they have as much suspicion as we do okay if we have uh, if we talk very badly about others and gossip behind their back and say all sorts of critical things and meddle with them we're going to assume that they do the same thing about us okay so if kind of everything that we're complaining about others doing it's a reflection of our own mind in one way or another okay so all these the hordes of Mara's armies descending on him was a reflection of his own anger yeah it's not that there was anybody outside coming it's a reflection of the anger so what do you do you know what do ordinary people do when people come to to beat them up and kill them and drive them nuts yeah they usually fight back they go completely crazy their adrenaline starts pumping and they start beating up okay what the Buddha did is he realized that this was the mechanism going on in his own mind due to his own anger and he transformed all of the weapons into flowers and the flowers all fell around him so that's whole that's that whole thing of that Dharmapada quote you know that hatred isn't solved by hatred it's solved by loving kindness so he extended his loving kindness to all those living beings and the, you know in the, the external appearances you know he's getting a lot of hatred he responded with loving kindness as a result all their weapons turned into flowers okay so if when people are angry at us you know or even if we're angry at ourselves if we respond with loving kindness then it dissipates the situation yeah. but we need a lot of trust to do that because our usual mo is i'm not going to be kind i'm going to fight with all i have yeah so to trust the power of our loving kindness to trust the power of you know deep samadhi that, that's hard you know but we practice it in our own way in our daily life you know when there's people with negative energy and that's why we're reciting the eight verses we see them as our supreme teacher we place them on the crown of our head you know so we practice this as much as we can so after dispelling his anger then Mara put forth all these beautiful women yeah. so what does that symbolize all of our attachment you know because sexual attachments one of the strongest attachments we have so all these incredible beautiful women showed up around him you know when he's trying to meditate you know and they're flirting and they're doing this and they're doing that and the whole nine yards and again 
he was able to see, oh, this is a reflection of my own attachment. There's nothing in these beings that is inherently beautiful, inherently desirable. And so through the power of seeing with clarity the impurity of the body, with the power of seeing the impermanence of whatever appears beautiful, how it fades away and becomes ugly. So when he... um, when he uh, had all this vision, you know, of these objects of attachment, yeah, then he recognized that was coming from himself. It wasn't coming from outside. He meditated on impermanence, saw the nature of the body for what it was, and all these beautiful women turned into hags, and they ran away. They disappeared. Okay? So again, this is instructing us on what to do when we have a lot of uh, attachment and lust coming into our meditation. Yeah, you see the object for what it is. You, know, you dissect the body. We'll get to this when we do the uh, establishment of mindfulness on the body. You meditate on impermanence. You see that whatever is beautiful now is, you know, not going to be very beautiful after a while. And so seeing with wisdom the nature of things like that, then letting go of the attachment, releasing the attachment. Okay? Most of us, what do we do? We run after objects of attachment. Yeah? But, you know, he was able to really see, no, this is, this is an appearance to my own mind because I have, I have attachment lost inside me, craving for these things. So now we're going to go back to the, um, the third knowledge. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of the destruction of the pollutants. I, direct, I directly knew, as it actually is, this is dukkha. This is the origin of dukkha. This is the cessation of dukkha. This is the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. These are the pollutants. This is the origin of the pollutants. This is the cessation of the pollutants. This is the way leading to the cessation of the pollutants. So he saw the Four Noble Truths. Okay. When I knew and saw this, my mind was liberated from the pollutant of sensual desire, from the pollutant of of uh, craving for existence in samsara and from the pollutant of ignorance when it was liberated there came the knowledge it is liberated I directly knew so he directly understood his realization I directly knew birth in cyclic existence is destroyed the holy life has been lived what had to be done has been done there is no more coming into any state of being in cyclic existence This was the third true knowledge attained by me in the third watch of the night. Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose. As happens in one who abides diligent, ardent, and resolute. So he attained enlightenment. It was on the full moon of the fourth uh, lunar month. And after that, he, uh, you know, he recognized his realization, but he thought, who, you know, I should teach, but who in the world is going to understand what I just experienced? Who in the world is going to listen? And so he, he kept on meditating and, you know, just kind of wondering, well, what do I do now? And then... Um, Saka and Brahma and some of the gods appeared before him and begged him and requested him saying that there's some beings with little dust in their wisdom eye. Go and teach them. So we may wonder, well, you know, the, the Buddha attained awakening, you know, for the benefit of sentient beings. How come he needs to be requested by these gods? And did he really hesitate to teach? Yeah? How can an enlightened being hesitate to teach? 
I think this part of the story is a way of explaining to ordinary people that even the, the great gods, the beings that they believed were great and powerful gods, saw the Buddha's attainment and saw that the Buddha was spiritually more accomplished than they were. And the fact that those beings, that ordinary people in those times, those gods that ordinary people regarded so highly, requested the Buddha to teach, that meant a lot to the average people of, oh, well, the Buddha must really be somebody. You know, Asaka and Brahma and Indra asked him to teach, I should go listen. Okay? So it, it, w- it would be like, you know, in, in, in our culture, if Moses and Jesus and Muhammad went to the Buddha and asked him to teach, you know, something along that line. People would go, Oh, wow, hmm. Yeah, this guy knows something. Yeah. And so then he uh, started thinking about who he could teach. And he thought, oh, what about Alara Kamala? He'll be open. But then he saw that Alara Kamala had passed away. And he thought, what about Udaka Ramaputta? And then he saw with his clairvoyance that he too had passed away sad, isn't it? You know, those two teachers were so close and yet so far. Then he said, well, what about my five friends that I was meditating with, the ones who rejected me and called me names when I left? And he saw that they were near Benares in Sarna, and so he set out to go there. And When he entered the deer park where his friends were, uh, they saw him and they said, there's that flake of Tama, you know, the one who started eating again, the one who's just like, you know, such a flake. So let's just ignore him when he comes, you know. But when the Buddha came over, they couldn't ignore him. There was the power of his radiance and they prepared his seat, they offered him water, and they asked him what he had understood, because it was very clear just from his demeanor that he had great realizations. And so then he gave them the first teaching that was on the Four Noble Truths. Okay, And thus started the Buddha's teaching career. And he spent, uh, he attained enlightenment at age 35 or 36, he spent the next 45 years walking all over North India from one side to the other, teaching people. Okay? And whoever came, those were the people who he taught. And he engaged with people from all levels of society, not just the wealthy. Not, you know, there were wealthy merchants. There was a Natapindika who donated a park and Shravasti. There was Vesaka um, who donated another park in Shravasti. There are plenty of people who were wealthy and donated things. But he didn't just teach those people. And he didn't just teach the kings. There was, you know, King Bimbasara and King Pra, Prasan, something like that. Uh, but he didn't teach just those people either. You know, whoever came and requested teachings, he taught. And he engaged with all levels of society, you know. And sometimes he would just walk around, uh, you know, if he heard of other groups of wanderers in the area, he would go kind of over and greet them and say, hello, how are you? And it's interesting in the sutras, inevitably those groups of wanderers were, were, you know, there was a complete ruckus going on. And then they saw the Buddha approached and they all calmed down and looked very serene and, you know, holy. (laughs) Yeah. But he talked with them. He talked with some Brahmins as well. Um, Poor people, rich people. It didn't really matter. Uh, And he he always taught according to the disposition and the interest and the spiritual capacity of the listener. Okay? 
So he, he was able, through his skillful means, to give people exactly the right teaching that they needed at that time. Yeah. When he passed away, the, uh, the Arhats came together and uh, they recited the sutras that they had heard him say, the sutras and also the Vinaya. And uh, they recited it all. And then because things were passed down in an oral way, it was an oral culture that time, um, certain groups of monastics were dedicated to, or designated, and then dedicated to memorizing certain uh, groups of sutras. So everything spread down in an oral tradition until about the first century BC when um, in Sri Lanka there was the threat that only one person had a particular text memorized. And if something happened to that person, that text would be lost. So then they decided to start writing the suttas and the Vinaya down. And so then it started becoming a written tradition. Okay, so we'll stop here for today.